to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Jerry Prokopovich with Civil War Talk Radio. Who was Abraham Lincoln's Secretary of War, Simon Cameron? When Thaddeus Stevens was asked about Cameron and his honesty, he said, Well, I don't think he would steal a red-hot stove. To this day, Cameron's reputation as an incompetent administrator is matched only by his image as a corrupt, self-interested politician. We'll hear about a very different view of Simon Cameron tonight from Dr. Paul Cahan author of Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. That's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America Interactive Radio Player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu Edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from the Civil War Talk Radio World Headquarters Annex at 205 Oxford Road in Greenville, North Carolina, not from the campus of East Carolina University, where I spend my days, but the, the old home place. So not, therefore, speaking for the university, although I would not be even if I were there, nor would my guest speak for anything but himself, as we always do on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, Reporting from home tonight, partly because just too exhausted after staying up late last night, the second Tuesday of November 2016, to watch election results, and now it is dark out, the clocks have changed as I drove home from the office today around twilight, which was about two in the afternoon, well, no, not really, uh, but it was twilight already after five o'clock, and it was raining, and as I looked to one side, uh, the sky was a, a angry red and purple color, the sort of color one imagines might fill the sky after an apocalyptic nuclear exchange, and Looking the other direction of the passenger window, there was a rainbow all the way from the horizon, all the way down to the horizon. So we shall see which of those is the most accurate omen of times to come uh, going forward from November 2016. 
and say no more about <clears throat> the national events of the last day or two. I will add, however, here in North Carolina, the uh, the the noble defender of the ladies' room, Governor Pat McCrory, appears to have been toppled from his porcelain throne. It looks like we will have a new governor, uh, which we'll see how that affects our university system in the year ahead. In the inner sanctum of Civil War Talk Radio, where we have some very interesting shows coming up in the weeks ahead, as always, interesting topics at least. I'll try to make the conversation interesting. Next week on November 16th, Guy Hubs will be with us to talk about a Confederate company in the making of a Southern community, Guarding Greensboro is the name of the book. It's about Greensboro, not Greensboro, North Carolina, a different state. <coughs> no live show on things. <coughs> Excuse me. No live show on Thanksgiving week, uh, November 23rd. But then we've got three more shows to round out the year. And Heidi burst into the room. Uh, three more shows to round out the year. M.R. Cordell on November 30th with courageous women of the Civil War, soldiers, spies, medics, and more. On December 7th, a date that hopefully will not be infamous for the show that we present that night, Ronald S. Coddington will talk about Faces of the Civil War Navy. It's an album of Union and Confederate soldiers. And finally, just added to the schedule on December 14th, Taya Miles will talk with us about her work Tales from the Haunted South, Dark Tourism, and Memories of Slavery from the Civil War Era. So lots of interesting things coming up. You can learn more about those at www.impedimentsofwar.org, where we find out what's going on in the Civil War world. You can find out about things at impedimentsofwar.org. You can also buy the books there. There are links to Amazon, to the various books, please. Use those if you're going to get tonight's book or any book. It will benefit the website that Mark Gaffney keeps running for us. And you can also donate directly to the Civil War Talk Radio book and other objects fund uh, by clicking on the PayPal button that you find on impedimentsofwar.org. This month only is a special bonus if you contribute to Civil War Talk Radio I will respond to any email that you send in conjunction with your donation with a personal reply directly to you answering your individual message, not a robot-generated auto-reply or a pseudo-personal message. It's actually typed by one of my Legion of Graduate students using uh, my account. Well, actually, I only have one graduate assistant this semester, and she doesn't have access to my account, and I've never had a robot-generated reply thing, so I've always replied personally to all listener email. So really, you're not getting anything extra this month. Um, And furthermore, it's not tax deductible. It's all illusory. But it is beneficial to Civil War Talk Radio. So, well, if anybody could appreciate the appearance of corruption that comes from me asking you for cash in exchange for personal favors, surely it would be the subject of tonight's book, Simon Cameron, uh, who served as Secretary of War in the Lincoln administration at the beginning of the Civil War, And he's the subject of a new book called Amiable Scoundrel. The author is Paul Cahan, and he joins us now, hopefully on the line. Uh, Dr. Cahan, are you there? Hello? There we go. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing well. How are you doing? 
Good. Thank you for joining me tonight. Uh, welcome to the show. Well, thank you very much for having me. I've been very much looking forward to speaking with you. So, I'm looking at your uh, dust jacket, figuring out what it is you do. It mentions you are a uh, lecturer at uh, Olone. Am I pronouncing that right? Uh, college. Ohlone College. Ohlone, there we go, in mm-hmm. Fremont, California. Um, is, is that a full-time day job? Do you, do you write these books for a living? Tell us a little bit about what, what keeps you busy when you're not talking about Simon Cameron. Well, it's funny that you should ask because I, I was teaching at Ohlone College, uh, and unfortunately they hired a full-time faculty member. So I ended up transitioning back to the museum world, and currently I'm the site director of the Daniel Boone Homestead in Birdsboro, Pennsylvania. Um, which is not that that far from my house. I live outside of Philadelphia. So you were mentioning uh, the election. I live in one of the great swing counties that uh, may have decided last night's election. Well, well, North Carolina, likewise, uh, a swing state. Uh, but we'll we'll leave that topic uh, behind us for now. Move on to the <laughs> the question of uh, uh, the museum world. I'm interested to hear that. Uh, I I worked in a museum before I came to East Carolina University. And I'm always interested in the the interchange between public history and academic history. Um, curious about your experience transitioning between the two, teaching or working with, uh, with sure. museums. Well, actually, Can I think that those amiable scoundrels actually my fifth book. Um, my first two books were about Eastern State Penitentiary, um, and they grew out of my experiences working there while I was in graduate school. And for people who are not familiar with Eastern State Penitentiary, it is, it was in its day, uh, the most important penological experiment. It was headquartered, it was here in Philadelphia, and it is currently open as a museum, and it's achieved international renown as being uh, a place of uh, ghostly activity. But while I was in graduate school, I had the good fortune to work there um, part-time to supplement my fellowship. And as a result, it got me thinking about the intersection between public and uh, history and more academic history. And so I ended up writing a narrative history of the prison and then using that as a springboard for writing my dissertation, which is about educational programming in America's jails. Well, it, it, very interesting to, to connect those two in that way and, and recognizing that a book one writes for a public audience and a dissertation obviously have different audiences and might not and require different different techniques. Uh, how did you get to how did you get to the topic of Simon Cameron? Well, so if you take a look at all of my books, they all deal in some way, shape, or form with Pennsylvania's history. Uh, and when I was setting out to write my fifth book, I knew I wanted to do something about the Civil War. And I the reason that I knew that was because you know Pennsylvania has this really crucial role. In the war, if you look at many of the most important political figures from that era, James Buchanan, David Wilmot, Thaddeus Stevens, Simon Cameron, Edwin Stanton to a certain extent, they're all from or have connections to Pennsylvania. And yet, there doesn't seem to have been any work that's really drawn those threads together. Uh, Anyone worth his salt who's studying the Civil War knows that the U.S has had exactly one president from Pennsylvania, that was James Buchanan, and his administration was something less than ideal. Um, So in thinking about Pennsylvania and the Civil War, I began casting about for a subject for studying the relationship between the two, 
And as I was reading um, Doris Kearns Goodwin's magisterial team of rivals, I was struck by her depiction of Simon Cameron. She depicts Cameron initially as this incredibly shrewd, incredibly clever politician who manages through sheer creativity and, you know, slipperiness to elbow his way into, into Lincoln's cabinet. But the moment he takes the oath of office, it's like his brain tumbles out of his head. He becomes a, a, a boob who can't do anything right. And that, to me, just didn't make any sense. I just couldn't understand how that could possibly be, you know, a, a reasonable portrait. So I went digging around for biographies of Cameron. And prior to Amiable Scoundrel, there was exactly one and one-half biography of Cameron. The first was written in 1942. It was obviously supposed to be the first of a two-part set. And I guess the author lost interest or died of embarrassment or something happened. But the only the first volume was ever published, and it only takes Cameron's story up to 1860. The second uh, biography was published in, in 1966. It's a cradle-to-grave biography, but it's not great. Um, it's very celebratory. Um, it's very superficial. And, you know, I was sitting at dinner one night complaining to my wife about, you know, this, this problem. And, you know, she said, well, you know, if, there, if there's no good biography, you should write it. And I think she's come to regret that because over the next 24 months, that's exactly what I did. So she got to, to live with Simon Cameron uh, vicariously through you. Oh, then. yes. In fact, when the book dropped earlier this year, we actually, one of Cameron's houses is now a bed and breakfast. And so she had the somewhat macabre experience of spending the night in Simon Cameron's bedroom. Wow. Very, yeah. uh, <laughs> so in in Goodwin's book and in, in Civil War literature generally, Cameron is typically portrayed, uh, if you have to reduce a character to one word, as some some authors might do in a large book, he, he is, uh, I think slippery was a word you used, a good word for mm-hmm. him. Uh, but your your work is revisionist in the sense that it, it challenges us to take a fresh look at this character, uh, and you don't find uh, as much evidence for this. But my first question on that regard is, how does... Why does he have this reputation as such a So that's a fantastic character? question. And I think that, you know, whenever I talk to people about this book, one of the things that I need, that, that I tell readers they need to do is they really need to adjust their perspective. We live in a post-civil service reform era, by which I mean that we live a century after the main uh, civil service reforms that have really changed the relationship between political supporters and their candidates, between the average citizen and their government. And, you know, we get very moralistic about that in a lot of ways. We have a tendency to look at the spoil system, which is that great Jacksonian innovation, as the bad old days. And so the, the ways in which politics was done and just was accepted as being done in the 19th century strikes us as horribly corrupt. And, I, you know, I, I encourage people to sort of check that perception at the door, because if you're going to understand Cameron and you're going to understand the political environment in which he operated, you really need to see it from the perspective of its participants. And when you begin doing that, what you then are able to do is say, okay, here's the baseline of what we would call acceptable corruption. Was Cameron any more corrupt than that? And what you find out is, no, actually, he wasn't. 
were there instances where he got people favorable jobs or government contracts in their in support, you know, in exchange for political support? Absolutely. But so did Abraham Lincoln. So did Andrew Jackson. So did Seward. So did Martin Van Buren. I mean, this is the way that politics worked in the 19th century. And so, you know, if we if we accept that, then we can begin digging down and saying, okay, well, what are the specifics uh, that really contribute to Cameron's uh, reputation of corruption? And the big event happens in 1839. Cameron is named to a commission that's sent out to adjudicate the terms of a treaty that the United States signs with the Winnebago Native Americans. And basically, you know, the United States makes a lot of these treaties with Native American groups, and basically what happens is usually those treaties obligate the United States to pay the Natives a certain amount of money. But it, of course, raises all of these questions. Who among the Natives are actually, uh, you know, eligible to receive this money? How much money? And so typically and, what and, happens uh, is Congress, uh, at the President's appointment, sets, sends out commissioners. They go out, they meet with the Native Americans, they come up with a list of people who are eligible to receive the money and how much, and then they disperse the funds. And Cameron in 1838, or excuse me, 1839 gets named to one of these commissions, and he goes out to rural Wisconsin, meets with the Native Americans, and he and his co-commissioner begin adjudicating their claims. The problem is the gold that was supposed to pay these claims never makes it out I to, to where Cameron is. And so Cameron and his co-commissioner come up with this really clever plan. They pay the Native Americans in bills printed on Cameron's bank, the Bank of Middletown, with the idea that Cameron will will keep receipts and then he'll turn them into into Congress, and Congress will just give them gold. And this, of course, just becomes a political nightmare because 1840 is an election year. I'm going to shout to talk over you for just a second. We have to take a quick break. We'll come right back, talk more about your book with Paul Kahn. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. It's Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Now you can take your favorite Voice America radio program with you anywhere. Sign up for our mobile app if you have an iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. The Voice America interactive radio player, powered by Aircast, gives you the freedom to listen to any of our programs anywhere, live, and on demand. No registration is required. Listen to your favorite Voice America hosts and discover new ones. Download the Voice America mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry, powered by Aircast. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. The latest business information is made simple with the Voice America Business Network. The professionals in the business world bring you live talk radio shows featuring an array of business topics, strategies for building wealth, sales and marketing, stock trading, investing, and business technology. Voice America business hosts are professionals in their fields and bring to the airwaves weekly business discussions that offer up-to-date information, advice, and education. The Voice America Business Network. The bottom line in business talk. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. 
If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu dot edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. Talking tonight with Paul Cahan, author of Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. We were just talking about uh, how uh, Cameron got his reputation for uh, enriching himself at the expense of the public and uh, the nickname uh, the Great Winnebago Chief. And uh, our guest was on a, a, a a tear giving us the details of this I had to rudely interrupt and I apologize for that uh, so how, how does this name attach to his, his work as a commissioner with the Winnebago Indians so as, just to recap uh, Cameron was sent out to adjudicate these claims and the gold that he was supposed to pay the claims in never arrived and so Cameron pays the claims in paper currency printed on uh, his bank of Middletown with the idea that he would be reimbursed by the federal government. The problem with all of this is it's happening in 1839, and the next year is an election year. The Democratic president, Martin Van Buren, looks very, very vulnerable because of bad economic times. And so Martin Van Buren's Whig opponents um, begin looking for anything they can do to even further erode Van Buren's popularity, and they strike on this presidential appointee, Simon Cameron, as a great way of, of attacking uh, Van Buren. And so they, be, they begin calling Cameron the great Winnebago chief as a political slur, as a way of pointing to the alleged corruption of the Martin Van Buren administration. And this epithet sticks. I mean, it sticks to Cameron throughout his life. Uh, his political opponents are still calling him the great Winnebago chief in the late 1870s and early 1880s. I mean, it lasts for 50 years. Um, but Congress ends up investigating claims of, uh, of Cameron's alleged corruption. The War Department investigates Cameron's claims of alleged corruption. And neither investigation demonstrates that Cameron did anything unethical, illegal, or immoral. Certainly not by the standards of the day. But again, you know, it, it sort of becomes a narrative. Cameron is corrupt. And so anytime anyone claims that Cameron is corrupt, it just feeds into that narrative. But if you begin scraping away at these individual instances, you find there's a whole lot of smoke, but not a whole lot of flame. Very interesting that, that uh, these things stick. Uh, another reason, perhaps, for Cameron being subject to this, uh, and something you point out in the book, is that along with a different attitude toward uh, what is public and private in the 19th century, is the fact that Cameron is a Democrat in the 1840s, but he eventually becomes a, a know-nothing briefly, and then a Republican. His political identity is much more fluid than we expect of a modern politician. Uh, how, how, does, how does one change parties in this fashion? Sure. You know, I, I think that, you know, again, we have a tendency to live in an era when political identity is relatively stable. You know, most people start out Democrats, they are, they're Democrats throughout their lives, they die Democrats or Republicans, and maybe they switch parties once in their lifetimes. But the political parties in Cameron, they were much more fluid. The Democratic Party emerges in the 1820s when Cameron is 
uh, a relatively young man, and it's essentially this, this collection of people who have shared antagonisms. Martin Van Buren describes it as the, the urban working class in the North and the Southern agrarian elite. And these people have very little in common except that they hate the same people. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why Andrew Jackson becomes their standard bearer, because there was no greater hater than Andrew Jackson. And the political party that rises up to, you know, uh, uh, you know, oppose Jackson is in an even bigger mess. The Whigs are, you know, even more diffuse and inchoate and are really only held together by their hatred of Andrew Jackson. And so as a result, you know, you, you, what you tend to have is attachment to individuals rather than attachment to platforms. Um, you know, political parties tend to be these big tent parties where, People disagree on a whole lot of things. Probably they disagree on more than they agree on. Um, and so in instances where, you know, Cameron is a Democrat, but he, he likes the high tariff, uh, he believes in internal improvements. I mean, these are things that put him at odds with most of the Democratic Party outside of Pennsylvania. And historians have often pointed to Cameron's frequent shifts of party loyalty is proving that he was a man without any sort of conviction or principle. But I think that if you look at Cameron's writings and, and what he had to say, you actually see a fair amount of consistency. Throughout his life, Cameron saw himself as a Pennsylvanian first and a Democrat or a know-nothing or a Republican second. He always believed that he was pursuing uh, or protecting Pennsylvania's interests. Um, you know, and that was, you know, it was, it was state first, party second, to paraphrase um, John, uh, John McCain. Um, but, you know, to, to modern years, that strikes us as a little bit bizarre, you know, because we don't, we don't privilege our, our state attachments above our party attachments in that way. Now, if, if politics is as personal as it is, uh, if it ties around who who's on which side more than the ideas you hold, uh, two characters who, who come up frequently in the book, uh, Andrew Curtin and Alexander McClure, uh, mm-hmm. both Pennsylvanians, they, they just keep showing up chapter after chapter as sort of Cameron's enemies for life. Uh, what? Yeah. Why? Uh, I, tell us a little bit about their story, their relationship with... Sure. So, uh, you know, one of the things that goes along with these political parties being so inchoate is that they tend to develop factions. And those factions tend to coalesce around particular individuals. So there's a faction of the Democratic Party that coalesces around Simon Cameron. And, you know, when he flees the Democratic Party in the mid-1850s and goes to the Know-Nothing Party, he takes with him many of his Democratic followers. But the the Know-Nothing Party is a relatively new party. There's a lot of people vying for control. And one of the other potential leaders of of the Know-Nothings in Pennsylvania is a guy by the name of Andrew G. Curtin, uh, who eventually becomes governor of the state. And he and Cameron come to loggerheads over the, uh, a Senate seat, uh, the Pennsylvania Senate seat in 1855. Both are seeking to be um, senator, for the, senator from Pennsylvania as a know-nothing. And, you know, on, on the surface, they're both part of the same party, but they really represent different factions of that party and, you know, represent different 
visions of what is in Pennsylvania's interest. And because of some behind-the-scenes stuff that I detail in the book, they end up hating one another uh, viciously. And that, that, you know, has a lot of effects when we get to the Civil War, because, of course, uh, Andrew Gray Curtin is elected governor of Pennsylvania in 1860 as a Republican. And so he's sort of vying for control of the Republican Party in Pennsylvania, just as Cameron is... Uh, now the Republican senator from Pennsylvania. He's vying for control of the Republican Party. Thaddeus Stevens is in some way vying for control of the Republican Party. Everybody's trying to be in charge, trying to control the state, because really national reputation in this era has a lot to do with solidifying a political base in your state. If you want a national political reputation, most of the time you get that by controlling the politics of your state. And, of course, you control the politics of your state through the judicious distribution of patronage. So a lot of what's going on and a lot of what happens with Cameron as Secretary of War owes a great deal to what's going on in Pennsylvania during the 1850s and 1860s. Now, Cameron becomes, by 1860, a national figure. He has has enough... Uh, uh, national notoriety through his his new loyalty to the Republican Party and his control of Pennsylvania politics that he's mentioned as one of the potential Republican nominees in 1860. Mm-hmm. In Why fact, does he... Pennsylvania even goes so far as to create a new county and name it after him. And Cameron County still exists today. Hmm. So why did he not... Why did he lose the nomination to Abraham Lincoln? Well, that's a very good question. And I... I think that it has a lot to do with, I don't think Cameron was actually, I don't think Cameron ever actually believed that he could secure the nomination or win the election. Um, Cameron was an incredibly shrewd political operator, and he clearly saw that 1860 was going to be a Republican year. Uh, Dissatisfaction with the Buchanan administration, coupled with the violent factionalism of the Democratic Party, meant that if the Republicans could unite on a single candidate, they had a really good shot at winning the White House. The problem was finding a candidate that all of them could unite behind. And I don't think that Cameron ever saw himself as that candidate. I think Cameron's moves in 1860 to consolidate his control over the Republican Party and raise his national profile were more about having the strongest hand possible going into the the Republican National Convention in Chicago. I think he sought to be kingmaker and use that to extract the best possible uh, deal from whoever the eventual nominee was. Um, Certainly, that's what ends up happening. Uh, Lincoln's men approach Cameron's men at Chicago and basically say, look, you know, give us your delegates, and in exchange, if, if Lincoln wins the election, your guy will have a cabinet seat. And, and Cameron's men make that deal without batting an eyelash. Um, Cameron had also gone to some great lengths to court other potential nominees, including William Seward. So I read Cameron's actions in 1858, 1859, and 1860 as more about having the strongest possible, putting himself in the strongest possible position to play kingmaker at Chicago rather than get the crown himself. 
Now, here, though, his reputation of, of for being the great uh, Winnebago chief, being uh, corrupt, causes a problem because when Lincoln initially offers him a cabinet post, you have uh, Sam and Chase of Ohio, who's also been offered a cabinet post, saying, I won't serve with Cameron. Uh, that And something happens. Lincoln gets some word from somewhere that causes him to withdraw the offer to Cameron. And then so what renew happens it is again. actually Andrew Gray Curtin's faction in Pennsylvania immediately mm-hmm. boards a train to uh, Springfield following the election. And, you know, basically hectors Lincoln uh, about reneging on his agreement to take Cameron into the cabinet. And, you know, they talk about corruption. In fact, at one point, Lincoln sends Cameron this sort of very vague letter that rescinds the author, offer of a cabinet position, makes some allusions to corruption, but nothing is specific. Mm-hmm. Um, but you have to look again at the context of all of this. You know, the guys who end up going to see Cameron, particularly Alexander McClure, who is um, Greg, Andrew Greg Curtin's right-hand man, have a political axe to grind with Cameron. They're not just good citizens doing their civic duty. They want to ensure that Cameron is not taken into the cabinet because if Cameron, if Cameron goes into the cabinet, the fear is that he will have access to all kinds of federal patronage with which to reward his subordinates in Pennsylvania. And as a result, Andrew Gregg Curtin's faction of the Republican Party will be eclipsed. And in fact, you actually see during the 1860 presidential campaign in Pennsylvania a great deal of rivalry and conflict between Cameron's faction and Curtin's faction. And what ends up happening is Cameron actually ends up on his own going out and raising a whole bunch of money for Republican candidates and really embarrassing Andrew Gregg Curtin and uh, Alexander McClure. And in some sense, there are machinations behind the scenes are an attempt to strengthen their position with Lincoln and weaken Cameron's. So Cameron does end up getting the the offer to be Secretary of War, which in some accounts uh, Lincoln is portrayed as looking for a place to, to stash Cameron that won't be that significant. And, and you know, uh, and I think sec- that's actually you know probably the the most illogical of all uh, you know arguments. And there is this mm-hmm. myth that that you know Lincoln was sort of uh, fettered to this corrupt politician, what am I going to do with him? Well, let me stick him somewhere where he'll do the least amount of damage. Well, in, in 1860, in March of 1861, if you're looking for a place to stick someone where they can do the least amount of damage, you wouldn't stick them in the War Department. Um, you know, Cameron himself didn't want the War Department. He wanted the Treasury Department. Um, but at that point, Sam and Chase already had the Treasury Department. The true bastion of spoils was the, uh, the postmaster generalship, because the postmaster generalship had all of these regional post offices to staff. He had all these, you know, postmasters um, to give out. I mean, that was really where the spoils men wanted to be. Cameron doesn't even ask for that. Uh, he consistently asks for the Treasury Department. I think that Lincoln, and Lincoln doesn't write down why he repeatedly insists that Cameron take the War Department. But I think that it has to do with Cameron's background. Cameron has served for almost a year as the uh, adjutant general of the Pennsylvania State Militia. It's from that experience that he ends up with the title general, which he uses throughout his life. And he had briefly served as visitor of West Point, 
essentially he was on the school's board of directors. And so meager as it was, Cameron actually had some military experience. And more importantly, he had some experience serving as an administrator over a military force. And I think Lincoln actually respected that and thought that Cameron would bring those skills to bear as Secretary of War. I don't read that as he was looking for someone to stash Cameron. I look at that as Lincoln did think that there was going to be a war coming or that there was a possibility of a war and was trying to maximize Cameron's talents. So, whereas in an ordinary decade, Secretary of War would be a place to hide someone away here, you'd think Interior Department or, or... You know, even an attorney general uh, might might work. You don't really have to be a lawyer for that. Uh, mm-hmm. But but Secretary of War is an important place. Uh, in just a, a few seconds before we take a, a break, uh, what's the number one problem he faces as Secretary of War? The twenty second version. Oh, he absolutely. There are so many problems, but without a doubt, <laughs> the biggest problem is the lack of coherent vision within the administration. So they they don't know what the plan is going to be. They don't have an army ready-made. They've got to produce all this. Uh, well, those are the problems that, that fall both to Abraham Lincoln and to his Secretary of War, Simon Cameron. And Cameron is the subject of the book Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. The author is Paul Cahan. He's our guest tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. We'll be back in a few moments with more Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between, discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu.edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Paul Cahan, author of Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. We talked about how uh, Cameron thrived in the di- very different political environment of the 19th century, in Pennsylvania politics, 
uh, how he rose to become Lincoln's choice as Secretary of War. It's now time for the weekly reminder that I have a degree from Harvard University uh, by pointing out, uh, Paul, when I was working with David Herbert Donald in my graduate days, he assigned me once to read all of Cameron's correspondence as Secretary of War uh, in, in a particular archive. I've forgotten which one. And the one letter that really stuck out in my memory was a constituent letter who wrote to him saying, I'm about to have, uh, or we just had twin boys, and we need to name them. Can you suggest some names for the children? And Cameron replied to Mr. Johnson, we'll call him, why not name them Simon Cameron Johnson and Gideon Wells Johnson? That would be patriotic. And I've, seen that. I've seen the letter you reference. yes. That's a healthy self-regard to uh, make that that suggestion. Uh, is that characteristic of, of is he an ego uh, person in that sense? Well, I think that... You know, yeah, I don't. I don't think that you get to the level where he was without having a healthy self-regard and a belief that, you know, you you were capable. I think you know Cameron's more important characteristics were his uh, soft-spoken gentility. Even the people who hated him and hated the things that he stood for, Alexander McClure in particular, nevertheless conceded that he was. Very, very easy to get along with. Uh, a lot of fun. Um, you know, had a real sense of bonhomie that was genuine. Uh, McClure talks about riding with him in, in this wagon. They were going somewhere out uh, near Harrisburg. And, you know, Cameron would stop and, and knew the farmers uh, out in rural Pennsylvania. He shook their hands. He talked to them. And it was genuine. And Cameron was also extremely generous. Uh, now, there was often a political motive behind his generosity, but his papers are just chock full of, you know, impecunious men trying to start a business, um, you know, communities in need of uh, money to put up a building or get a uh, bell or we need some funds for an inoculation because we've had smallpox or something along those lines. And Cameron, more often than not, writes those checks. You know, he is an incredibly generous, family-centric, easy-to-get-along-with person. But again, with a healthy self-regard, certainly. Uh, he was not a shrinking violet. Well, you know, you point out that personality is one of the, the main pillars of 19th century politics. And uh, in this context, you also reference the, the book uh, Washington Brotherhood. And I'm blanking on the author's name, uh, Rachel uh, was her first name. Sheldon. Sheldon. Thank you. Rachel Sheldon. Uh, yeah. Wonderful book. She was on the show uh, uh, not too long ago. And she, she shows how all these politicians were personal friends, even if they were deep political enemies in many cases. And uh, Cameron certainly embodies that. He's friends, as you say, with everybody. He, he, doesn't, he gets along with people. Now, what listeners to this show know Cameron for is his job as Secretary of War, and uh, his reputation for, for problems with the administration of the War Department. But I, I, because it's so important, I don't want to leave it to the very end and leave it out. One of the critical things you observe about him, and the one that ultimately leads to his downfall as Secretary of War, is his attitude toward slavery and race. Mm -hmm. Could you talk about that? 
Yeah, so I think, you know, of all of the things, I think the, this is where Amiable Scoundrel probably makes the most important scholarly contribution. Um, you know, Cameron has been depicted, I think, as this mustachioed villain. And I think that that has obscured the really important role that he played in very, very progressive uh, policies regarding race. Now, it's important to separate Cameron's attitude about race from his attitude about slavery, particularly before mm-hmm. the war. Up to the beginning of the war, Cameron is a conservative on the issue of slavery, by which I mean he thinks slavery is abhorrent and regrettable, but he doesn't believe that the federal government has the power to do anything about it. He believes that states have the right to choose to to be slave states or to be free states. Once the war starts, however, he very quickly uh, sees that it has to become a war against slavery in order to succeed. But that being said, Cameron is also incredibly progressive on issues of race. Uh, at one point, he hires an escaped slave to work in his house, and he recognizes the man's incredibly intelligent. So Cameron, out of his own pocket, educates this man, uh, who ends up going on to be uh, ambassador to the United States from Liberia. Um, Cameron writes very movingly about Francis Datcher, who is a clerk in the War Department when Cameron becomes Secretary of War. Thatcher had been there for many, many years, and Cameron had known him going back to the 1830s. And when Datcher retires, Cameron writes incredibly movingly about how he couldn't have been Secretary of War without Datcher. Uh, Datcher's advice um, and his counsel were absolutely essential in helping Cameron get situated and, and figure out you know, what to do and that he would be really missed. And I think perhaps most important, in 1865... You know, a regiment of black soldiers comes marching through the streets of Harrisburg in order to, you know, walk by and salute Simon Cameron at Cameron's house. And it's it's an incredibly moving and important moment. These soldiers had been um, excluded from a similar march in Washington. And so they were invited to come to Harrisburg in part because Cameron's house was, was there and they could salute the man who in a lot of ways, got the ball rolling for the enlistment of African-Americans into the U.S. Army. Now, in 1861, there's no thought of enlisting African-Americans in the United States Army. Uh, Well, Cameron's thinking about it. Except for a few people. Uh, Yes. There are people, some are pushing the envelope too hard, certainly for Lincoln's political view of the situation. Uh, uh, Fremont in Missouri is proposing emancipation, and Lincoln fears he'll lose Kentucky. But Cameron uh, is early on pushing the idea of enlisting black soldiers. So so you think this is just, it's not quite consistent with his pre-war conservatism. I found it interesting that he was one of the first to to go in that direction. Well, actually, I I see a fair amount of, I see a fair amount of consistency because I think the, the argument that Cameron would make and did make was as long as we're abiding by the Constitution. The Constitution is the thing that gives South Carolina, for instance, the right to be a slave state. Once once South Carolina abrogates the Constitution by trying to cede, all bets are off. And, you know, we need to do whatever we can to quell this rebellion. And it's not just about defeating the army in the field, it's about sapping Southerners' will to fight. It's about sapping their economy. And so you have all of these escaped slaves fleeing to union lines. Let's put them to work. Let's put them in uniform. So I actually see a fair amount of consistency in Cameron's thinking. 
And from almost the moment that shots are fired on uh, Fort Sumter, this is the argument that Cameron is making. He's arguing this in the spring and in the summer during cabinet meetings. And then in the fall, when he doesn't get anywhere with Lincoln, he begins making the argument publicly, subtly at first by appearing next to speakers who are making this argument and then eventually he puts the argument into his annual report, which he very cleverly, or not so cleverly, releases to the media in December, shortly before giving it to the president. And here I think he was trying to box Lincoln in. And once it becomes clear that, you know, Cameron is trying to do this, Lincoln just, you know, kind of goes berserk and says, you know, this, this is not for the Secretary of War to do, this is for the president to do. He tries to get all the copies of the report back, and that doesn't actually work. And so it actually becomes a minor scandal. It becomes a scandal because you have this incredibly important cabinet figure arguing that African Americans should be allowed to enlist, and it becomes a scandal because the president is trying to cover that, that up. And, you know, from the moment that, that Cameron does this, he's sidelined in the administration, and within five weeks, he's out. Well, the, the strategy of, of going behind your boss's back and releasing something to the, the public without getting it cleared in most organizations, does not get you very far. Uh, yeah. It's a real gamble. If, if it works with the public, that's one thing, but you're, you're taking a chance. Now, this also ties in with Cameron's historiographical reputation, where other historians have portrayed this not as a principled move to help win the war, but rather uh, Cameron's looking for political allies among the abolitionists in the Senate. Uh, it's just another... A, a, a you know deliberate uh, thing that he does to to try to advance his own interests, and you argue quite clearly that, that this really is is far from the case. Yeah, I think that you, the only way you can make that argument is if you don't see the statements that he's making in the spring and you know early summer, you know, advocating consistently we should be doing this. You know, the historiographical argument that you reference is all about this idea that, oh, well, you know, Cameron was on the outs with, with Lincoln, and so what he does is he tries to ingratiate himself with the radicals in the, in the hope that the radicals would, would essentially prevent Lincoln from removing Cameron. Um, but if you actually look at, you know, the documents that I cite and, the, the, you know, the, the people who, to whom Cameron spoke about this in that time, you see that he was making this argument you know, eight, nine, ten months before he was removed. So this wasn't something that he came to um, sort of out of political expedience. And if you also then put that into the context of his earlier sort of relationship with African Americans, particularly the servant that I, you know, I mentioned that he educated, um, what you see is actually, if you pull the lens back, a fairly consistent interest in the plight of African Americans throughout Cameron's adult life. Uh, he becomes involved in some way in the institution that becomes Lincoln University outside of Philadelphia. Um, when he returns to the Senate in 1867, he advocates very passionately for a uh, revision of the Pennsylvania State Constitution to guarantee African Americans the right to vote. These are not the sorts of things that, these are not the positions that he would have taken out of political expedience or, you know, uh, had to take out of political expedience. I read these as positions that he was taking because he genuinely believed in them. 
And I think part of that historiographical tradition you talk about, you know, is predicated on believing that, that, that Cameron's a scoundrel. And so we can't trust anything that comes out of his mouth. If he's saying something, he must be lying or it must be disingenuous. Um, but if you can get outside of that reputation and sort of look at the sources, you know, I think it becomes, I think that interpretation begins crumbling. Well, it, it is a challenge, uh, I guess, across to bear for Simon Cameron because uh, historians are still writing that way they did during his lifetime, uh, his, or his contemporaries did. When mm-hmm. After he leaves the Secretary of War position, he gets sent off as minister to Russia. Uh, supposedly, I think Daddy Stevens says, tell the Tsar to bring his things in at night, uh, implying the light-fingered Cameron is on his way. Just in, in the last minute or so, uh, Cameron spends very little time in Russia, makes his way back, gets back in the U.S. Senate, remains an active figure, and you just alluded briefly to his, his post-war work. Could you say a few words about that? Yeah, so he ends up uh, returning to the Senate uh, for a decade between 1867 and 1877, where he plays an incredibly important role as a sort of behind-the-scenes counselor to President Ulysses S. Grant. Uh, in 1871, Cameron assumes the chairmanship of the Senate uh, Committee on Foreign Relations, then as now the most prestigious committee, and is heavily, heavily involved in some of the most important uh, foreign policy successes of the Grant administration. Uh, And then eventually he retires in 1877, largely because the political era in which he came of age, that's Jacksonian spoil system, is gradually being replaced by civil service reform. Um, but again, it doesn't stop him from, at nearly age 80, getting himself involved in a sex scandal. And if that interests your readers, there's a whole chapter about it at the end of the book. Well, that my wife's advice is always you need to put sex in these books if you want them to sell. And uh, <laughs> that's always good advice. Uh, readers who want to find out about that will want to get a copy of Amiable Scoundrel, Simon Cameron, Lincoln's Scandalous Secretary of War. Uh, by our guest tonight, Paul Cahan. Paul, it's been a pleasure talking with you about this very interesting book. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network. It's staff and management.